there were several problems in the Corinthian church. And Paul is in the middle of confronting one of them, maybe the most significant. It was the problem of division. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Local churches like Veritas or like the church in Corinth should never splinter into various groups with various leaders and various opinions. But that was happening in Corinth. And as a result, people were fighting. Chapter one, verse 11, they were bragging. Chapter one, verse 29, and they were looking down on others. Chapter four, verse six, I follow Peter, some said. I follow Apollos, others said. I follow Paul, some said. And by this point in the letter, Paul has made very clear the absurdity of Christians boasting in anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, as Paul has just made clear in 1, 26 through 31, the Corinthians are Christians not because of anything that they've done, not because of anything that anyone else has done, including Paul. They are Christians solely because of the sovereign grace of God. Nevertheless, there were still factions within this church. And regarding Paul, it's obvious that there were some who idolized him. In 1 verse 13, he confronts some who are acting as if Paul was crucified for them. Some idolized Paul, but others marginalized him. They were critical of his ministry. They are the arrogant people of chapter 4 verse 19. So Paul, in our text today, speaks to his haters and his believers He takes his readers back to the very early days of his ministry among them. And as he does, he is looking to rest the Corinthians faith in the power of God and not the wisdom of men, which would result in fellowship and humility as opposed to pride and division. So Paul's brief memoir And these five verses is the subject of this morning's sermon, which I've organized under three headings. Here they are for those of you who don't like to get into a back seat before knowing where the car is going. Number one, Paul's gospel focus. That's verses one and two. Paul's gospel focus. Number two, Paul's spirit dependence. That's in verses three and four. And third, Paul's pastoral purpose. Paul's gospel focus, Paul's spirit dependence, and Paul's pastoral purpose. And as we move forward, remember that this is God's word. And in God's word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, we learn who God is and what he has done. And what we're doing now is a big deal because if the word of God is preached with the help of the Holy Spirit, then lives are changed. It always results in God's glory and your good. Which is why before I preach this sermon, 
we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we all listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with affections, and move our wills to love and obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which if you don't own a Bible, you're free to take with you. You will find today's text on page 619. About five years before Paul writes this letter, he first came to the city of Corinth. And now... In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he reminds his readers of those first days that he was with them. Specifically, again, he will remind them of his gospel focus, his spirit dependence, and his pastoral purpose. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2, where God willing, we'll see Paul's gospel focus. Verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. When Paul first came to Corinth, which you can read about in Acts chapter 18, he came proclaiming the testimony of God without lofty speech or wisdom. Wisdom here refers to the wisdom of the world, which is what Paul called it in chapter 1, verse 20. It is wisdom that comes from the world. It sounds good. It is fashionable and trendy and attractive. But we learn from 1, 19 and 23, it is wisdom that ultimately mocks and rejects the cross of Christ and it ends in eternal alienation from God. That's the wisdom that Paul refers to here. Lofty speech refers to high speech or what Paul has already called in 1 verse 17, eloquent speech. These are words that are meant to impress. Lofty words are big words and un. And polished rhetoric. It is speech that sounds intelligent. It sounds important. It sounds persuasive. You may not always understand it, but it sounds good. Now, here's the thing. Lofty speech and wisdom is exactly what the Corinthians wanted. The Corinthians were Greeks. And Greeks were known for their love of oratory and rhetoric and wisdom. Paul told us that in 1 verse 22. And historians confirm it. Corinthians would invite the best speech writers in the world. They would invite the best speech givers in the known world. They would even hold competitions for them to speak at. Many parents would begin training their children at a very young age to be professional speakers. They loved it. This is why probably many of the Corinthians loved Apollos, who was the preacher that followed Paul. Because we're told in Acts 18.24 that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
And conversely, it's probably why some did not like Paul. Because Paul intentionally did not use eloquence and lofty speech. But in addition to that, in addition to Paul intentionally not using lofty speech, he was unintentionally not a talented speaker. Paul was not a talented speaker. In fact, he calls himself in 2 Corinthians eleven six unskilled in speaking. So Paul wasn't what they wanted. Paul was not a professional speaker and he made no apologies about it. He intentionally avoided even the lofty speech that the Corinthians wanted. And why did he do that? He tells us in verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Put those two verses together. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Put those two verses together. Here is what Paul is saying. I didn't come to you as a professional speaker because I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul is not saying he didn't know anything else. Paul knew a lot more than the word of the cross. Paul knew a lot more than the gospel. Paul is the writer of the book of Romans. We could study Romans the rest of our lives and not fully understand and comprehend what Paul was trying to teach us in the book of Romans. So Paul is not saying that he doesn't know anything else. He's saying that he decided to make central in all of his teaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's what John Piper says about verse 2. It does not mean that the only thing he mentioned in his 18 months in Corinth was the cross, because even in this letter, he scolds them for not understanding other things, too. What it means is that whatever else he knew, whatever else he spoke about and whatever else he did, he would know it and say it and do it in relation to Christ crucified. So Paul is reminding his readers first of the gospel focus of his ministry. If he preached anything, he preached the gospel. Anything he preached revolved around the gospel. In his opinion, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the gospel is the thing of most importance. And the gospel is the good news is that Jesus Christ came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in the place of sinners. So that sinners could be reconciled to God. If Paul preached anything he preached and elaborated on that message. If Paul preached anything, it always revolved around that core good news gospel message. One of my teachers gave me probably the best advice 
ever for sermon preparation. His advice to me was to never preach without first asking this question. Did Jesus Christ have to die in order for me to preach this sermon? And the answer better be yes. And if Jesus Christ dying on the cross is ever inconsequential to a sermon, the sermon needs to be tossed. I ask it every week. So Paul did not come with lofty speech. He just came proclaiming. That is what a faithful preacher does. He proclaims. He doesn't invent, pontificate, or speculate. He holds his hands, in his hands and in his heart, the word of the cross. And he has no right to alter it or amend it, only proclaim it. And so rather than worldly wisdom, Paul brought the testimony of God or the story of God. So you see what he did. They wanted lofty speech. He just came proclaiming. They wanted worldly wisdom. He brought the testimony of God. And listen, this is still what Christians need. This is not a first century thing. This is still what Christians need. This is still what the church needs. This is still what this church needs. It is to the church's shame and humiliation that I grew up among Christians and rarely heard the word of the cross. I say that with sadness in my heart. I grew up among Christians. And it is to the church's shame and humiliation that I rarely heard the word of the cross. So be different for your kids. It'll be different for your kids. The word of God exposited and the gospel proclaimed are far too rare in churches today. The church today still does not need lofty speech or worldly wisdom. We don't need the wisdom of the day. The church does not need five principles for better parenting or ten steps to confidence at work or six truths that will change your marriage. The church needs men, not girly men, but real men, men like Paul committed to proclaiming the testimony of God. Listen, nothing has ever happened among God's people apart from first a man of God standing up and proclaiming boldly God's word. Throughout biblical history, throughout written history, throughout American history, any and all great movements of God always begin with the word of God boldly proclaimed out of a man's mouth. Young men. If you want to make a difference in this world, consider preparing to boldly preach the word of God.
We need more preachers, not less preachers. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So that's the first thing about Paul's ministry that he reminds the Corinthians of. It's gospel focus. Okay, let's move on to the second mark of Paul's ministry. We'll find it in verses 3 and 4, where we will see Paul's spirit dependence. Verses 3 and 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Paul had no disillusions about who he was. He knew his shortcomings. And he knew his weaknesses. He certainly did not depend on himself. He tells us here that when he first came to the Corinthians, he was weak and fearful and trembling. Or to put that another way, he had no self-strength, courage, or confidence. And that is not surprising If we go back and read the book of Acts and we remind ourselves of what Paul had gone through leading up to his ministry in Corinth, his ministry up until that point could be summarized by the words persecution and failure. People had tried to murder Paul. He had been beaten. He had been thrown into jail. He had been mocked and rejected. And frankly, not many people responded positively to his preaching, especially Recently, so he came into Corinth in pretty bad shape, physically, emotionally and spiritually. He didn't show up in a limo with the red carpet rolled out in front of him. There weren't posters in town announcing that he was going to have some speaking dates coming up. He did not draw a crowd He did not, even when he stood up to speak, naturally command people's attention. In fact, historians tell us that his presence and demeanor were at best unimpressive and at worst off-putting. In his commentary, Leon Morris quotes a historian who says this, Paul is said to be a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. In a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, otherwise known as a unibrow, and nose somewhat hooked. So he sounds like Gru from Despicable Me. Like I read that quote, it's sort of like every time I'm reading 1 Corinthians, I'm picturing Gru with like a, some papyrus. Here's what the Corinthians said about him. This is in 2 Corinthians 10.10. The Corinthians said about him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence in weak and his speech of no account. So Paul, naturally speaking, he's not much to look at and he's not much to listen to. And on top of all that, he came to Corinth afraid and shaky, pelted by persecution and ministry failure. And he hopes and prays that his ministry is going to make a difference, that people will be saved. But he's entering into a city that prizes everything that he's not. 
A city that prizes strong, confident, professional preachers. So no wonder he comes into town with no self-strength, courage, or confidence. So before I move on, can you imagine how tempting it would be for Paul to change his message and his method at this point? Imagine how tempting, if, if there was ever a time to try something new, this would have been it. If he was tired of being mocked and rejected and abused, he knew exactly what he needed to do to gain the approval of the people of the city. He just needed some eloquence, some lofty speech. He was brilliant. He was capable of that. And some worldly wisdom. But he didn't cave. He didn't give in. He didn't care. He kept the main thing, the main thing. He was wholeheartedly committed to the preaching of the gospel. And so again, he simply came proclaiming Christ crucified. The testimony of God. The word of the cross. Now look at the end of verse 4. I didn't read it. But at the end of verse 4, this is where Paul is going with these verses. I mean, how was he able to faithfully proclaim the testimony of God in Corinth of all places when he had no self-strength, confidence, or courage? So let's read verses 3 and 4 again. It's where the answer is. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. This is the second thing Paul reminds the Corinthians of regarding his ministry. His spirit dependence. Capital S. Not a dependence on his spirit, on his soul, but on the Holy Spirit. How was Paul able to faithfully proclaim the testimony of God? He was dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. Actually, the next verses, which we'll begin looking at next week, God willing, will elaborate on this essential power of the Holy Spirit. He understood that his gospel-focused ministry wasn't going to go anywhere without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so he was a man, he was a preacher, who could be weak and who could be full of fear and who could be trembling because he was relying on and depending on the Holy Spirit. He knew it wasn't about him. He knew that there was nothing that he could do to close the deal. He knew that that was up to the Holy Spirit. And so his ministry ended up being a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. The greatest preachers, and by greatest I mean faithful, know this. No matter how good no matter how good a speaker a preacher is, no matter how good his preparation is, he could be as good as Paul. 
And his ministry, his message cannot go anywhere apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. I know no matter how good my preparation is, every sermon will fall flat apart from the Spirit's power. So one thing I do every week. One of the things I do every week as I sit in that chair before I preach is to follow the example of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was perhaps, in my opinion, he was the greatest preacher to ever live. He preached in London during the 19th century at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, held thousands of people. He preached there for about 30 years and his pulpit was at the top of two spiral. It was at the top and center of two spiral staircases, each with 15 steps. And every time Charles Spurgeon ascended those stairs to preach, he would say to himself himself with each step 15 times, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. As gifted and great a preacher as he was, he reminded himself every time he preached that it wasn't going anywhere without the Holy Spirit. It's the same for us as a church. It's the same for you as a Christian. Like Paul and his ministry, we are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Paul said this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He said, so our gospel, I preached it, Paul is saying, it came to you, but it didn't just come to you in word. It wasn't just words coming out of my mouth. If it was only words coming out of my mouth, it would not have made a difference. He says, so these words came to you, not merely as words, but also in power. Well, how did words get power and in the Holy Spirit And with full conviction. And if it didn't come that way to the Thessalonians. No one would have believed. There wouldn't have been a single convert in Thessalonica. Not a single convert in Corinth. Not a single convert in Roseville. Not unless the Holy Spirit was moving in and through his sword. Which is called the word of God. So pray before you read God's word. If you read God's word without first praying for the Holy Spirit's help, good luck. Get in the habit of praying before you read God's word. Get in the habit of studying Before you read God's word, what are you praying before you read and study God's word? God, this is this is your word. This is word from God, and I'm a human being. 
and my mind is limited. And I can't understand this physical world and all that's to it, let alone the spiritual world and all that is to it. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I can no longer do algebra. I can't remember dates. I'm not going to understand word from God as a human being unless you do something. Unless you send your Holy Spirit. And give me the power To understand your word. And to apply your word. So speak to me now God through your word. Convict my heart through your word. Do this before you preach. I do this every week don't we? Before we preach. The prayer is pretty simple. Father in heaven. Help us to understand your word. What's the implication? Without you, we're not going to understand your word. Help us to understand your word. Not only that, put affections in our heart. I have affection for my wife. I have affection for my children. I have affection for all of you. There's caring and love for one another. God, as I read your word, give me affections for you. Desires for you, love for you. Help us to understand your word. So affect our minds, we pray. Affect our hearts, we pray. Affect us emotionally, we pray. And affect our wills. Take it from our head to our hearts to our hands. May we not just be people who understand your word. May we not just be people who feel the truth of your word. But may we be people who actually do something. With your words. So change our wills, we pray. What are we doing? We're acknowledging that we are spirit dependent. So before you read the word, before you study the word, before you preach the word, before you teach the word, before you teach the word to your kids, whether it's family worship or Catechism in the car or kneeling down at their bedside at night. If you're going to speak truth from the word of God, whether out loud or in your heart, pray. Pray. Dear God, I'm about to speak your truth to this nine year old, to this four year old, to this six year old, to this 16 year old. God, help me now to proclaim your truth faithfully and would you God would you move in their hearts right now and in their minds right now so that a seed is planted or so that the seed that's already planted is watered or so that that seed that has been planted and watered comes into full bloom right now but we're praying God do something we pray do something we pray and what are we saying we are totally spirit dependent So by verse 5, Paul has reminded the Corinthians and us of the gospel focus of his ministry as well as the spirit dependence of his ministry. And now he recalls one more mark of his ministry. Number three, the pastoral purpose. Read verse 5 with me. It begins with two little words. So that which means a purpose is coming up. 
This gospel focus and spirit dependence of Paul's ministry has a purpose, a goal, a target. And here it is, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is the pastoral purpose of Paul's ministry. He wants them to stop trusting and following and looking to man. He wants them to trust and follow and look to God. He doesn't want their house built on the sand. Remember the song you learned in Sunday school? He doesn't want them to be the foolish man who builds their house on the sand. He wants them to be the wise men and women who build their house on the rock. He preached the word of the cross in weakness so that the Corinthians faith would not rest in or the King James Version says stand on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Rest means depend on. Rest means rely on. Faith that rests or relies on or depends on the wisdom of men results in pride and arrogance, boasting and quarreling and division. That was the problem in Corinth. Faith that rests in the power of God results in humility and fellowship. And so that is the third thing about his ministry. Paul reminds the Corinthians of its pastoral purpose. In conclusion. Think about what Paul has done since chapter one, verse 17. This is a section of thought here. If you have your Bibles, look at. Chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul first started talking about his call to preach the gospel and to just preach the gospel and not do it with the eloquent words, to not give people what they wanted to hear, but give them what they needed to hear. He started that in chapter 1, verse 17, and he brings it here through chapter 2, verse 5. And in all of that, he has reminded his readers that, number one, they were fools. They were fools. Remember in chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, he said, Corinthians, you were weak, low, despised nobodies. He wasn't being cruel to them. He was being realistic. You weren't famous. You weren't well known. You weren't rich. You didn't come from good families. No one knew who you were. You didn't have any particular strengths or gifts that made you stand out in the world. You were weak. You were low. You were despised. You were nobodies. They were fools. He's reminded them of that. And number two, they were converted by a foolish message. You were fools, he says, converted by a foolish message. Chapter one, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. He called the gospel in chapter 1 verse 22. The folly of what we preach. The gospel still today. Is offensive. 
to people. It is mysterious. It is magical, supernatural, otherworldly. If you speak the gospel today, just like speaking the gospel in Corinth, it would be offensive to people. It is true that the gospel is the greatest comfort in the universe, but it is also the sharpest criticism. Because the gospel starts with the bad news that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not as good as you thought you were. You don't give God what he deserves. You don't love God the way you should. You don't love others the way you should. There's some bright spots, but it's only by the grace of God. If left to yourself, you would only hate God. If left to yourself, you would only hate others unless it served yourself. If left to yourself, you would continue in your sin, in your rebellion against God, and then one day you'd die. And when you die, you'd face this good God that you'd hated your entire life and it would not go well. You'd be judged and you'd be alienated from him eternally forever in hell. Your heart cannot be depended on. It is sick, the Bible says, and beyond cure. It is deceptive and you can't understand it. Your mind cannot be trusted. You're futile in your thinking. Your mind is small. It's only able to comprehend and understand so much. Even the most intelligent among you. Even the smartest among you. Your whole body. Everything that there is that makes you up is sinful at its core. And it wants to run away from God. Not to God. Apart from him doing a work in you. There is no sharper criticism. It doesn't get any lower than that. Nothing else could be said that cuts the legs out from underneath any pride or bragging or boasting or self-confidence than the gospel. And so it is so offensive to people. Now, some will skip that part. They'll skip that part and just get right to God loves you. And the message just sort of becomes the gospel is God loves you. And of course, he loves you because you're cute and smart and you're a pretty good person. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, we quoted last week, that we are these these cosmic charity cases. It's not like God was looking around heaven and saying, I could really use an Eric Myers. There's something about that guy. He's funny. He's pretty smart. You know, he's got that good suit. He wears every single Sunday. Same one. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I like that guy. It's a little boring around here. You know, just me and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In eternal communion, love with one another. I could really use an Eric. I could really use a you. I could really use a you. That's not it. His love for us is not conditional. It is unconditional. There's nothing in you. There's nothing in me that draws God 
to us. Now, it's not like that in any other relationship, not in any other relationship. So we assume when we hear God loves us, it's because we're lovable. That is not the gospel. We are not lovable. Do you know that about yourself? I am not lovable. I'm not worthy of my wife's love. I'm not worthy of my children's love. I'm not worthy of your love, let alone God's love. I'm thankful for it, but my wife's love for me is not an echo of my greatness or my worth or my value. Neither is my children's, neither is yours, and certainly it is not an echo of my value. When God loves me, it's an echo of his value and his great worth. But that is a foolish message in the world. That makes no sense in the world. It is illogical in the world. It is offensive in the world. It is mysterious in the world. It sounds like fantasy. It sounds like a magical movie because it is a magical story. About a great God, a great king who comes and slays the dragon and saves the bride. He's reminded them. They were fools, converted by a foolish message. Number three, delivered by a foolish method, preaching. Preaching is a foolish method. That wasn't what you were supposed to do in Corinth. But just come and stand up behind a a pulpit or a lectern and just talk to people for an hour. Just proclaim the story of God, the testimony of God. No, you need some eloquence. You need some lofty speech. You need like a skit or a drama or like a video clip. (laughs) But Paul came and he used a foolish method. He came proclaiming the testimony of God. He said, without 1 verse 17 and 2 verse 1, without lofty speech or eloquence or worldly Wisdom. It's a foolish method preaching is. And every once in a while, every once in a while, many in the church will rise up. It's nothing new and say, you know, we need to stop this preaching thing. It's antiquated. It's old school. It doesn't work anymore. I can remember buying into that when I was a youth pastor 10 years ago. Not 10 years ago. That's when this church started. 15 years ago, 17 years ago, I can remember hearing that. It's antiquated. It's old school. You need to have dialogue. You need to have conversation. It's offensive. You can't stand up and yell at a room full of people. No one's going to want that. No one's going to desire that. Now, that might be true. But to say that no one will be changed by it is false. Again, I'd encourage you to look throughout history. When God has moved among people, how did it start? Through the word of God being faithfully preached. We need more preachers, not less preachers. So they were fools, converted by a foolish message, delivered by a foolish method. And then finally, in today's text, he's reminded us that it was through a foolish man. They were fools converted by a foolish message delivered by a foolish method through a foolish man. 
Verse 3, he came weak and fearful and trembling. So what is the point he makes at the end of our text today? Clearly, the wisdom of men is not behind their faith. You get what he's saying? Clearly, it's not the wisdom of men, the intelligence of men, the craftiness of men, the speaking of men. That's clearly not what's behind their faith. It is the power of God behind their faith is the point he makes. And so God delights still today. God delights to save fools through foolish preachers with a foolish message so that God alone gets all the glory. So personally, I am very thankful to be a foolish preacher with a foolish message among fools. I hope that doesn't offend you. I'm very thankful to be part of a church whose ministry is unapologetically gospel focused. And this is not a because of me thing. This is a you thing. This is a this church thing. I'm thankful to be a part of a church whose ministry is unapologetically gospel centered. I'm very thankful to be part of a church whose ministry is desperately spirit dependent. And I'm very thankful to be part of a church whose ministry has a pastoral purpose. We do what we do so that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is not an entertainment church. You're not here because of the fluorescent lights and the ceiling tiles that are so appealing. There's no smoke machines here. There's no strobe lights here. There are no skits or video clips. There is no popcorn. We're not treated like children here with short attention spans who need to be jolted and enticed to stay or return. This is a church that takes very seriously the word of God and the preaching of the word of God. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. And I know from countless, countless conversations by this point that at the end of the day, you are not here because of the wisdom of men. You are here to fellowship with God's people and you are here to feed and to feast on his holy word. And now figuratively speaking. In fellowship. We feast on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. We do that in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross through his death. First Corinthians eleven twenty three and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so we're remembering and we're proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. 
If you're here and you are visiting, you are invited to take communion with us. If, if you are a baptized believer, in other words, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ alone, and if you are part of a local church, whether it's this or another, that faithfully preaches the gospel and is holding you accountable, we'll have leaders in the front to serve you. We ask that you'd empty into the center aisle, come forward, then return to your seats from the outside. Please wait, and we'll eat the bread and drink the juice together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we are now turning our attention to the sacrificial death of your son. To him be the glory. To you alone be the glory. We come to you weak and fearful and trembling. Thankful that you have saved us. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you And in his name we pray, amen.